We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome into the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams and alongside Scott Strickland. There are three of us in the studio today. Uh, It's great always to have you here, Alan, and it's extra great to have you here, Scott. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. New logo. New logo. But it's the same setup. Yeah, yeah, what do you in the what studio? Do you, what do you think of the logo? Is it okay? It's, it, with it's, it? it's a lot cleaner than your old. Logo. It is a lot. <laughs> it is much cleaner than the old logo. Um, Congrats, though. Yeah, we really wanted something that would look okay on on merch and clothing. That was kind of the main idea. I have one question. Yes. So why is the F? I think I know, but yeah. it, the F is a different color. That's it's right. the orange. It's Everything the orange else F. is in the blue. Yeah. So yeah. I'm guessing F is for Florida. It is. But I didn't know if y'all if y'all are really just trying to emphasize the word football. So I was curious. I like that. No, you know, I um I have a long stated love affair with the old orange block F that used to be on the field. So much so that I would put it back on the field is how much I love it. And so I couldn't use the block F, which is an original idea. We wanted to take a modern script and put the block F as that orange F, but obviously I do not have the rights to do that. So that was the idea. So that's like the closest so I can come. to that. To an homage to my favorite. But it's a very modern F, so you could have it gone is. with another old F of some sort. I could have, but the problem was like there's that the block F is the block F. And when I kept doing that, I was like, yeah, but it takes an aesthetic step down. Yeah. And I would only do it for the the block F that I know and love. Um, which again, put it anywhere in the field, even if it's small, I would love it. <laughs> I just wanted you to know I was paying attention. That's I know, good. and I, I love that about how, how you pay attention to seemingly everything. I don't know how you do it. Um, as always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to our film review on YouTube, and become a patron on Patreon, where you too can drop us a dono. Shoutouts as usual to B Red, our producer who's still in the offseason, and Kari the Commissioner. Also, some special love to Trevor and Kelly, who I ran into in Gainesville this week while out and about eating dinner. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. It's great to have you. It's great running into you guys weekly, too. Whenever you see Alan and I, go ahead and uh, stop us and say hello. As always, you can discuss anything you want on the GNFP Sammy and the GNFP Java Discord channels. And finally, merch is available. You can get that. It's on the show links. Just check that out. If you don't like something, send me a message. We'll see if we can craft something up 
for you. All right, a few new patrons here. Small Dono, brand new Dono from Brad Southwell. Welcome aboard, Brad. Yeah. Level Up from Marshall and Kathy Gallup. Longtime supporters. Thank you, guys. Uh, Large Dono, new from Ann McQuinn. Thanks, Ann. Welcome aboard. And then some more level ups from Glenn Merritt, who did the Javon Curse Freak Dono. 42 nice there. little homage. Shout Throwing out back there. to the old school number, 42 at Florida. Level up from William Bars. Thank you, William. And then a Hundo Bomb. Whoa, I need the Hundo Bomb button back out here. Rob Copenhaver. <laughs> boo, 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 boo. Nice work, <laughs> Rob. Way to send that. Uh, Rob is actually friends with some people I know. Uh, Monica and Greg down there in St. Pete, Tampa area. And Rob, thanks so much for your support and uh, just in general. The Hundo Bomb. Thanks for that. Yeah, I've had one of those in a while. Still sitting on the throne is James Ridge. It's been it's been a minute. He has been leading us here for quite some time. And Alan, send us through the Donut Legends. Let's do it. Barry Jenkins, Guy Templeson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the big homie, Little Peyton, Constantine Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stosh Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcelisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell. Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarato, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, and Kristen Moody. Quite a distinguished list there. Thank you. Thanks to each and every one of you. And yes, Scott, thanks for being here. And let me just say congrats on the titles that have come in recently. Uh, it was a fun spring for the Gators. I, I think that was probably the first men's golf match I watched. Huh. We caught the end of it, saw them winning. That was so, fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a great little event. I wish I was like, college golf, who knew? But I guess everything gets broadcast these days. Well, you know, the match play format, we experience for... The, we don't play it hardly at all during the regular season, but uh, the SEC, last three rounds are match playing in the NCAA. Um and it is as compelling as any sporting event that you have. And, and it just just so happened that we had some unbelievable matches, the Vandy match and the SEC uh, championship to win that. And then the semifinal against FSU was, um, as you know, a great comeback victory. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the national championship against uh, Georgia Tech. So that was fun. And then Mouse Holloway continues to be Mouse Holloway. Yeah. Uh, women are second in the outdoor, men are first. And it's a great way to wrap up the uh, – the spring sports season, the 22-23 athletic year, and had three other teams that finished national runner-up, um, the women's track I mentioned, right. and then gymnastics and, and baseball. So a lot of success there. Yeah, I, I know I really appreciate this, and I think I've grown in this appreciation over the years of of Gator kind of Athletics and how proficient and prolific like almost every single program is. So we have a question here from Mark Mitchell – wants to know how do you balance your time and attention as a AD with, you know, there's this outsized attention on football and basketball, but we have all these other sports that are, you know, prolific and doing so well. So how do you think about that? Um, you know, they're all, they all matter. They're all important. And, and, and you know, just like uh, in your family, everybody, you love everybody. Everybody has different strengths and, and um, different things going on. And you may have to spend more time with a, a certain member of your family at certain times of their life or certain seasons of what's going on in there uh, in the year. But you try to balance that as much as possible. I would say it's very similar. You know, we have 21 sports, over 500 student athletes mm. uh, that compete for the Gators. And um, 
you know, it's, it's, I always, I had a, a guy I worked for a long time ago who came from the corporate world who compared the, uh, the, the sports teams as kind of a stock portfolio. And so you have, you know, you're, you're paying it. If you have a, if you're, you have a you know, portfolio, you're following all of what you possess, well, you know, what's in there. You want them all to do well. Um, you realize there's going to be some days, some are up and some are down. And, and at the same time, you're going to have some that are your blue chip, some of your, your, uh, your, your, uh, small mark, small cap, some are mid cap. And, you know, you hope your overall portfolio is successful on an annual basis. And that's probably the best way to look at it. You know, football, men's basketball are, are big cap, uh, stocks, right? They've, if you're going to have an overall successful portfolio, they need to consistently do well. But those other ones can are really important and, um, you know, it allows you to make sure you're having success on an ongoing basis if you if you have the right investments. I figured you'd like that, James, that, that analogy. There you go. I do like it. I can't help but think if, if we're running a business in the athletic department, we do have two positive revenue sports ROI-wise in football and in basketball and the rest of them of course are, are breaking even at best or losing money. So I've always sort of viewed it as you have a business in the two and then you almost have a nonprofit in the other ones where you're supporting them because you, like you mentioned, they all perhaps matter equally. Right. But the engine, the ROI engine that's required to fuel their sports, if that's not working well, that's when things get more difficult from a funding perspective, from people maybe caring even more about the other sports. So I thought, it was great to see how many Gator fans really hopped on baseball. I thought right, towards yeah. the end of the year, a lot of my friends had never really watched any Gator baseball. We've been plenty good before. And the the sort of summation was, we're just hungry for one of the other sports that maybe isn't always winning. Gymnastics winning all the time, right? Track, you almost get, you just take it for granted. It's like, of course, track is going to win. Um, but I thought that was interesting to see how involved people were into baseball. But uh, But certainly, I think I saw the stat that what Florida... Is the only athletic department now, Scott, that's been um, top ten or whatever it was top for five, top five for, or top ten for all forty years? All forty years, right? Been top five for fourteen straight years in the all sports directors cup, and then you know, hey, it's they, the, at the end of the day, they all matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, James. If you were looking at it strictly from a, a business dollar standpoint, there are two sports that make money, and there's nineteen that lose money. And those two that make money pay for the other 19. But, um, you know, the the fact of the matter is the currency that we deal in really isn't dollars. It's it's um, people's emotions. Hmm. That's the equity. That's the, that's the currency that we're dealing in. And uh, those two sports that make money, they make money because probably there's more people's emotions tied up into them. But it doesn't mean that the others don't have... Uh, whether they have a niche market or a more broad market than niche. Um, and they're all important. And the other, at the end of the day, you know, uh, we have a responsibility to those young people and those coaches to do everything we can to give them the same championship experience with integrity that we want football, men's basketball to have. Yeah, I think that's always been, for me, in my short athletic department career, I always felt like the end user really was the, the players, the student athletes themselves. That, that's why this exists. And then you have other stakeholders down the way, but the, the true end user is the athlete themselves, right? right? That's the sport. They're playing the sport. We're not. They're the ones who have their college experience right up in this. We do not. 
And then you can work the peripheries. So, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine just like you said, that's got to be the goal is how do we give them the best possible experience, give them the best possible chance to succeed? Because that is at the end of the day what this exists for. You know, otherwise it wouldn't be college sports. It'd be it'd be something else. All right. Now, leading into this one. Yeah, there's the headliner. Here. And I'm going to steer this because, of course, we got a million questions on the stadium. We asked Scott before we started recording, hey, what question do you think everyone's going to ask? And, of course, the stadium and he mentioned he was on the steve russell show today and he talked about the stadium uh i had texted you from la when i was at dodger stadium and said hey they did a phenomenal place with this stadium it retains seemingly all of its old school charm and character while also being updated while also not changing dimensional lines or moving you further away or whatever um Great venue. And I know that we all care about the swamp greatly. I know everyone has their own opinions. I know that I certainly am like sky high on atmosphere. That's what I would put all my bucket into atmosphere. And the Odom for me, which was before you, of course, just whiffed, I think, in so many ways on atmosphere. And I think a lot of people have some fear that carries over from that. It's like the Odom before was not perfect, but it did have some sort of identity you were really close to the basketball court. It was super hot thanks to the swimming pool. Um, <laughs> you know, you just had this sort of weird vibe in there. And I think things got bigger and more spread apart. And now, you know, the Bull Gators, they're never in their seats because they're in the club area. And it just doesn't feel intimate. So I know that that seems to be, if I could get one thread to touch on, it's a loss of noise, a loss of what makes college football perhaps college football with that intimacy close to the field, not being so far away like some NFL venues where you're sitting in your big armchair and you're enjoying it and you just sort of are, you know, uh, not a part of the game, but you're watching. So what are you, what are maybe your overarching goals for this? Is probably the best question. Like if this is successful, what happens so that the swamp is a better venue? Um, it's, it's interesting you bring up Dodger stadium um, because I, they did a phenomenal job as did Fenway park of taking uh, an old, and you've heard me say this, an iconic facility and updating it, modernizing it without losing what's unique and special about it. So that would be my goal. And uh, ironically, there's a lady named Janet Marie Smith who um, uh, was kind of the impetus behind Camden Yards, which was the first retro ballpark in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, who then worked for the Braves for a little bit when they did Turner Field and then uh, worked uh, took the lead on the Fenway Park renovation and she now works for the Dodgers and has just completed the Dodger Stadium renovation. She has been our consultant up to this point on the studies we've done and we'll probably continue to utilize her. I, I, Janet Marie and I both went to the same high school, so I saw I know her, but um, we were not in the, in the same time, but we have a connection. Um, she is She's really good in that space and – um, but that's we, we. I reached out to her because I think that's really important. How can you take something that needs help? I think we would all agree there's a lot of opportunities to improve uh, what the the swamp provides from an experience standpoint. When I say experience, I'm not talking about necessarily while you're sitting in your seat. I'm talking about everything from walking up, tailgating, entering the stadium, the concourse getting your food, restrooms, whatever. And yes, it does include the seating bowl. But how can you take what's really special? And I say this as someone who had a love affair with the swap before I ever came to the University of Florida because I had uh, came to work in the University of Florida because I had been here 
and experienced what a game is like. And I thought there, I mean, it was my favorite stadium in the SEC. The fans are so close to the field, both from a uh, linear standpoint, meaning there's not a lot of room on the sidelines from the stands to the field. And then the seats seem to go straight up, right? They're not yeah. like set back uh, like you have at some stadiums. They, there's a rake steepness that that make it feel uh, daunting and gives an energy mm-hmm. to it. So, how do you how do you maintain retain all of that, and um, and at the same time update and modernize? So, I don't know the answer to how we're going to accomplish it. We have we we've, we've done a lot of studies. Um, and there's a, there's a lot, as you can imagine, every action you might take, there's consequences. Some of them are positive and some of them are less so. And I'll give you, I, I gave this example on the Steve Russell show. You know, I, we have people, uh, request handrails in the aisles because there are no handrails mm-hmm. and, um, the, uh, American with Disabilities Act, ADA, requires you to have handrails in stadium. If we went and built a new stadium, we built Condor Ballpark, we had to put handrails because ADA requires it. Well, facilities that existed prior to ADA got grandfathered in unless or until they do renovations. And so once we touch the seating bowl of the swamp, so once we decide, okay, we're going to put handrails in, we suddenly trigger ADA throughout the venue, which means that our number of accessibility seats has to uh, increase um, to put handrails in, it's not as simple as putting handrails in because the aisles aren't wide enough to code to accommodate the handrails. And so you have to basically cut off the rows of seats on each side of the aisle to accommodate for the width for the handrails. So right there, just by adding handrails, you've widened the aisles, which is a good thing, but you've eliminated seating. You've, you've lost capacity. Just you haven't, And that's not adding a chair back. That's not widening a seat. That's just adding handrails. I use that as an example to say there's a, there's, there's, it's a complicated puzzle. Um, and, uh, but the end goal would be, uh, to kind of mirror what they, you know, you mentioned Dodger stadium. It's a, that's, that's a great example right there. How do we make it feel just like the swamp, but nicer and better and extend the useful livelihood of it for generations to come. Yeah, you mentioned Camden Yards. Good chance for me to say go O's. Uh, big Orioles fan from Baltimore. They're having a historic season this year with a tiny salary cap. And Camden, of course, is in their own discussion of how to revamp some of that. And they are planning on shrinking their stadium down. It's one of the bigger ones in baseball and trying to do more of the same. Uh, so, yes, I think I think I was really encouraged last time we talked about this subject with, with whom you had mentioned you had reached out to. Because as you just heard Scott mention, those are examples of extremely well done and and look into the local fan base for how they felt about those renovations. And I look at Yankee stadium, which to me is still a tragedy that they knocked down an historic ballpark where you could watch that as a kid. And you would say, look, that's where Mickey Mantle roamed the outfield and Joe DiMaggio and all these guys. And now you're like, well, that's over there in the parking lot. And that's a travesty. So to get it all right, it's really difficult. I think you mentioned the ADA, you mentioned losing some seats. I think at the end of the day, right, your goal um, which is what you kind of said already is to, is to really retain the ethos of the swamp, which is that atmosphere. Uh, and that is, you know, architecture, seating, intimacy, mood, all those things influence noise, excitement level, as you mentioned. So it's not just that Florida fans are so rabid and crazy. They'll make any stadium noisy. The stadium itself, the architecture itself, the setup itself leads to creating that kind of soul. 
And uh, obviously it will be complicated. We know all of you have thoughts, but uh, I think more answers I'm assuming will be coming as a plan gets developed right now, right? You're still in the idea generation phase for how we're going to. Yeah, we actually, we've, we've, and the reason this is kind of kicked up is because we have begun the process of selecting the architect, the, the, the design professionals, professionals that will kind of lead the process. So, uh, I mentioned Janet Marie. Janet Marie won't be the lead architect. She 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 might be a consultant on the project, but up to this point, she's consulted on our studies. And basically, you do a study to try to figure out a scope of work. And what we've determined through these studies is the scope needs to be pretty substantial. And so we'll hire. We're advertising right now for an architect. Here we are at the end of June, early July, uh, end of July, early August. Um, and I would imagine sometime early early fall. We will have gone through the process to shortlist an interview and select who that architect's going to be. And then we'll spend uh, probably the this school year putting details in place and making firm decisions. And um, I, I don't think there's a single part of the stadium that doesn't need to be touched. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to – being touched doesn't mean it has to be dramatically different. So – you know, we'll still have bleachers in a lot of places. We may have majority bleachers. I know people are, you know, there's a, there's a segment of our fan base that is concerned. We're going to put a bunch of chair backs in, reduce capacity. And what you reference at the, you know, the club level, the club seats at basketball kind of uh, happening at football. I don't, I don't know that that is going to, you know, that that same thing translates. I don't know that putting a bunch of chair back seats and we have some older people who probably love it. But I don't know that that putting them all over the place makes sense. Maybe in some there may be some areas where it does make sense. Um, you know, there may be some some standing room areas we don't currently have that we can build out that would, if we do lose seat count because of handrails that will, you know and code, maybe you can create some standing room areas that that help uh, supplement and and create uh, some crowd capacity. Um, but. I mean, you know, entry gates, we don't have enough and they're not big enough. Uh, we don't have enough uh, point, concession point of sales. Uh, we went to Lambeau Field last fall. That's another great example. Even though Lambeau is about 30 years younger than the Swamp. Keep that in mind. Wow. They have 78,000 seats. This is fascinating. 78,000 seats and they have 1,000 concession point of sales. 78,000 seats, 1,000 point of sales for concessions. Swamp has 88,000 seats. We have 200 point of sales for concessions. Um, and your concession count and your restroom count need to be tied together. You guys can probably figure out why, yeah. but there's a biological reason why that's connected. That's good. But we, so we need to add uh, better restrooms, bigger restrooms, uh, bigger concessions, uh, you know, make it more uh, easy to move around the concourse space uh, so people can not waste a quarter of their game standing in line for something. Um, we have... 180,000 square feet of office space currently in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Part of that's used by the UAA. Part of that's used by the university. Um, we, at some point, we're probably going to need to re, need to convert some of those office square footage into uh, fan areas on game day to widen concourses, to do all the things I mentioned with concessions and everything. New video board. Uh, new sound systems, new lighting. Uh, I think there's some premium space, uh, some things we can do with our existing premium spaces. I know there's some things with our current existing premium spaces we can improve, uh, but also can we create some new premium spaces um, and, you know, uh, you know, different price points allow different people to experience different things. Um, 
I don't think we're going to be able to do all this in one off season. I think it's probably going to be a, a phased approach. Uh, the, uh, you know, we will, the intent is if, if we have to do it over multiple off seasons, we would keep playing games in Gainesville. I think that's really important. Um, it's important for our football team. It's important for our fans. It's really important for the city of Gainesville and, and North Central Florida. So um, that's a lot. Uh, and if you, we can jump, dig into any of that y'all want to go deeper into. But that's uh, it's going to be uh, the most comprehensive, significant at, uh, facility project in the history of Gator athletics and, and maybe among the most in, in all of college athletics. Wow. Well, I appreciate you just giving that example of the complicated nature of what we're doing. And it matters because the swamp matters. Like when you have an iconic building, you have a stewardship of that place. All right. If you just had a run of the mill stadium, it wouldn't matter. You could do whatever you want to. People wouldn't care. Just make it nicer. would be the goal. But you know, when you, I've been going to games now, you know, since I was in college, made it to most of them. And on one hand, I'm, fearful of like doing anything right if you do anything to change this place is it going to change the core nature of it but at the same time i'm six two if i sit down it's tight and i think that's true for everybody right who you know experiences a swamp is that kind of both end of it and i probably have spent less than 150 dollars in concessions in those 20 something years because i don't want to miss anything in the game and the price point is often not what I want, but often it's more though. I don't want to miss the time. And so that's a real thing is like, you have somebody like me who's been to every game and barely spent any money. That's something you want to address as well. So I, I appreciate you highlighting all those things and the complicated nature of that. And uh, I think it's encouraging for me if I just put on my fan hat here to say, here you talk <laughs> about your desire to keep the spirit of the swamp alive. If we can say something as corny as that. Yeah. And there's, and there's a lot of, um, um, internal needs as well. We, you know, we used the the Disney Gator Room, which is a a, a big room that was part of the uh, Hebner Stadium, the Hebner Center that's in the stadium where mm-hmm. the offices were. Part of that renovation when Coach Meyer was here, and we use that on game day as our um, the hub of for recruiting student athletes, and then to get recruiting uh, those athletes, those recruits from the Gator Room into their seats. We have to go out into the main concourse and fight, you know, the mass of humanity and and get down their seats. There's not a real convenient path to get them there. Or we take them through a really old stairwell and pop them out at ground level, but it's not a great path. Um, we need a new recruiting room set up, right, hmm. basically. And so that's uh, that's a long-winded way to say there's a lot of areas like yeah. that. We don't have a kitchen. This is crazy. We have two kitchens in Condren Ballpark, a brand-new ballpark. We have two kitchens. So all the food that fans eat at Condra Ballpark is being produced on site. And, um, I've, you know, I think people are really, really happy with the product there. We don't have a single kitchen in the football stadium. We have to cook it off site and bring everything wow. in, which uh, the quality is not as good. So simple things like a commissary <laughs> on site. Um, and again, fans don't care about that, but right. it affects them in a roundabout way. And so uh, there's a lot of... Uh, I guess that would be infrastructure type things that, that you would add to the list in addition to all the other things I mentioned earlier. Oh yeah, that's for sure. And I know sound has been something I've been clamoring yeah. for and hoping for. Talked about that forever. And, and of course there are endless things you could upgrade. And I think at the end of the day, you're 
stating it well, if you're just Alan and I, and we're like, okay, we go to the football game for peak football atmosphere and experience. Well, we are in the minority of probably most of the fans that go that go for they go for the football experience, but they're probably not as into being uncomfortable because uncomfortable leads to a better atmosphere, and that's all we really care about, right? Um, they might be bringing all their families and their wives and their kids, and they want to sit in a space that fits them, and they want to have a family-friendly area to go to. And so it's balancing out, as you mentioned earlier, your portfolio for all these different stakeholders to make an experience that works for everyone. That's the magic, and I think right now it doesn't work for everyone, as you mentioned, and nothing you do can work for everyone, but you can upgrade yourself along the way and then hopefully get closer to that. And the 2.0 version hopefully is even better than the 1.0 version. And I know for a lot of you out there that are really worried about losing seats, that if the swamp is at 75,000 and not 92,000 or 91,000, that somehow we will be you know diminished as a football program. I, I hear those ideas and those frustrations. Um, and obviously, you know, I think what Scott mentioned is if you change the seating bowl at all, there's already going to be a reduction in seats. So unless you go up, well, I was going to say that, else, the, the answer is to, back. yeah, the answer <laughs> is to build more structure to, to compensate for that. And so we're not opposed to, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that, you know, if it, if it makes sense, if it, you can do it in a way that fits, um, you know, some, and again, I have no idea if, if the architects we hire are going to look at this and say, this makes, this works or not. But we, you know, we have, we have some gaps where the North end zone is upper deck is disconnected from the, from the uh, east and west sides, you know, could you, could you build some standing room decks in that gap in some wedges, wedge those in, if you will, to create some, some standing room capacity. I'm just throwing this out as an idea. Is there a way, you know, if we, if we, you know, where this, where the, where the recruits currently sit in the south end zone ground level, if you create another section or another seating location for the recruits could you create a ground level standing room premium level in that south end zone where fans can be right there at the on the field and but they're not really taking up a seat so to speak but there's a premium club space they can go back into um there's there's some creative ways you can approach this that that doesn't have to uh, dramatically change what the inside bowl looks like yeah, and I think the takeaway from this, at least for me, and I think probably for you too, Alan, is you can hear that Scott is very conscientious mm-hmm. of all of these <laughs> things. There's one thing I know about you, Scott. It's that you're very conscientious. You take all these different thoughts in. And I think just you loving the swamp before is important. You know, you could be an athletic director who's here as their own ideas and envisions a totally modern setup and wants a Jerry world, and that's just what you want to do. And, of course, there's other stakeholders you'd have conversations with. But I think it's clear that... If any one of us were in your shoes, there's a million compromises that have to be made. Uh, and it's not an easy gig, but that obviously you are, I think, on the same page of, of those of us that love the swamp and want to retain that ethos of it. That's certainly, I think, where you know where you are as you steward the process. And we're thankful for you investing time and efforts to do so, for sure. Well, I appreciate it. It's, um, that's the intention. Uh, you know, there's, there's just going to be... Uh, I'm anxious to get the process started, select the architect and really get, you know, uh, dig, you know, roll up our sleeves and get after it. And, and then, um, I don't know. I, there's some hesitation in my voice because I don't know exactly where we're going to end up, mm-hmm. but at some point I've, I've been through enough facility projects, none quite this scope, but I know at some point something's going to click 
in in this process. And there's going to be something that I that that we can be really excited about. And then I'm going to be fired up to come and share it with everybody. And um, just I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, me too. All right, let me switch gears and talk to you about the other hot topic in Gator Nation, which is schedule. So, you know, this year is the last year of the old model. We're in a kind of a, I guess, still feeling it out process for the future. But I have to say, when I looked at the 2024 schedule, I, I think I audibly gasped. One, just the, the variety of opponents, but also when I started to look, I was like, I think this might be the hardest college football schedule I've ever seen. And maybe that is like, you know, less surprising in future years. But for right now, I, I was almost, I couldn't quite believe the slate of games. I mean, that when you have my, when you throw Miami on there, UCF, which is now a power five school and the kind of murderer's row of SEC opponents you're going to face. I was both like excited as a fan and thinking, oh man, that is a tall task for the 2024 team. They better get ready. Um, so I guess my question is when you saw that thing come together, what was your reaction to it? Well, you know, the non-conference schedule was put together with a different SEC sure. schedule in mind. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, you, we've talked about when I've been on with you guys before, there mm-hmm. is, there is a, uh, a, a desire to change the, the scheduling model that existed, you know, for the last 30 something years where you have Florida state and three games that are considered really winnable and mm-hmm. maybe not that compelling. Uh, and and try to you know try to make those a little more interesting. So you know the Utah game last year this year obviously does that. Uh, Miami is kind of replacing the Utah series, um, and the UCF was a uh, you know it's a home game. It's it's part of a three game package, but the other two games aren't until you know I think twenty thirty and beyond. Yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, that was a game that, that I thought would make people kind of excited to get that game in the swamp and, and, uh, host them. Um, and then, you know, Texas, no, you join. So that was in place. And then Texas, no, you joins and the SEC model shifts. What I would tell you is that, um, I, I think we have a really challenge. It'll be a very compelling, interesting, uh, schedule. Uh, I, I think the university of Florida, um, uh, and I, you know, you never know where we're going to be on any given process. And I love the direction Billy's going and how he's building. Uh, but um, University of Florida should be have a football program that could handle a challenging schedule. Yeah, is my is is the way I would put that. The, um, and then I would tell you that every SEC school probably looked at their eight game schedule for twenty four and may not as gasped as hard as you did. Uh, but had a similar reaction, sure, because it's it's you know it's it's going to be real exciting, you know, and and you this is only the eight game version, right? So just think about these conversations between eight and nine games. Um, it's it's going to uh, it's that this is going to really be a great experience in a way to kind of step into the sixteen team league with this eight game schedule, um, but it's going to create a lot of really compelling matchups and the opportunity for us to have a home schedule where we have, we open with Miami. We also have UCF and then you're playing, um, I'm trying off the top of my head. We've got Texas A&M, 
I think Ole Miss, and I'm leaving. Uh, is it Kentucky? I'm, I'm blending the two in my head right now between. Next and we actually year have and, a fourth. Yeah. We have a fourth because George is George's. our road game that year. So there's a fourth game. I'm and I. I we should I'm, probably. Know I'm not trying to be disrespectful, and I, I just off the top of my head. I no, it's okay. There's, but it's another really compelling yeah. SEC matchup, is my recollection. So Mississippi um, State, maybe. No, it's. I think it's. It's not LSU. We go to LSU. It's if we only go to Texas. Can tell us. It's A uh, and M. Um, it is it is Ole Miss. I believe it's Kentucky. Yep, Kentucky's one. And that A and M. Yeah, LSU, Kentucky, Ole Miss. A&M. LSU's at home? It's at home. Okay. I'm, Georgia, I'm, I'm Mississippi sorry. State, Tennessee, Texas away. So that's it. It's LSU, A&M, Ole Miss, and um, Kentucky, Miami, UCF, Sanford. That's a heck of a home schedule, right? And it's what we, yeah. you know, we've been talking about. How do we make uh, the games the games that people want to come to the swamp and, and you know, get next 90,000 of their closest Gator friends and, and cheer on the, the team. So um, – I think that's. I think it's great. I think it's good for college football. And uh, like I said, the University of Florida should should embrace those kind of schedules. For oh, sure. I, I loved it. I love it. I think that it shows how long college football and college football fans have gotten used to something bizarre in sports at the most competitive level, which is playing teams you're significantly better than frequently, which yeah. is weird. You know, if you follow any major sport, you don't look at your schedule and just get designated wins. Maybe, so, maybe. So you're an Orioles fan. I'm a Reds fan. Yeah. Which we're, at, we're having a oh, resurgence. Oh, man, the, the Reds and Orioles are like the same right now. Yeah. So, yeah. but like, it would be like if 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 the Reds had uh, you know 20 percent of their 162 game schedule was against their own Triple A team yeah, or right. another Triple A team. Yeah. And they counted it. Like, yeah. Why would we? Why would we do that? Like so nobody would uh, let that go. No. And and there, you know, so my philosophical reason as to why that happens is because our postseason is not based on standings or mm-hmm. based on people's opinions. And so people try to game the they game their schedule and and just put a, a number up there. And so uh, this new college football playoff, so 2024 we'll have this great schedule and we'll mm-hmm. have a 12-team college football playoff. And the, the CFP selection committee is going to determine – if people stay with these schedules or not, because if they do what the basketball committee has done, the men's basketball committee, which has rewarded teams over the years that have played tougher schedules and they have penalized teams that build up gaudy records against inferior teams. If the CFP committee does the same, then it'll embolden the university of Florida to continue to schedule like this and other schools will join us. If they do the opposite, we'll have to look at it changing our model and our strategy for the non-conference game. So really the CFP selection committee is going to determine what regular season schedules look like going forward based on how they start uh, selecting that 12 team playoff. In my opinion, preach, preach on brother, man. Yeah, those, those, yeah. Are some, those are some good words right there. Uh, I think you're exactly right. And and hopefully with a model laid out by the basketball tournament, they would follow that. Also knowing that the SEC has been in what some crazy stat, just about every single national championship game in the past 21 years. And we've won it, I don't know, 16 times. It's not exactly right, but, and the SEC has the hardest schedule regardless. So, you know, you would think there would be something to that, but to your point, it's beautiful to look at college football and see a lot of these obstacles that existed towards competitive scheduling removed. 
And I can only hope, as you mentioned, we do not go backwards now because the right. committee rewards a team that shows an easy path and gives them a higher seed because we should all be rooting for, as you mentioned, the Reds and the Orioles to be playing versus other major league teams. Right. And same thing here. We should be playing Texas, Oklahoma, and others. And that's what we should expect and want. And also, that actually, oddly enough, increases your margin for error if you're a better football team. It does. That's the weird You can thing. have a slip up or two. Correct. Because you're playing a competitive schedule. The better teams will win more often versus other better teams. When you get a team that only has one or two hard games a season and opinions come into play, it's actually much harder to verify who may be better. You know, one of the, the NFL has so many great things going for it, the way it's structured. But one thing the NFL does not have is the Sunday after the play, after the last regular season games, there's no controversy over who made the playoffs. Right? Because yeah. it's based on... There's a formula based on wins and losses. <laughs> so no one is saying, I can't believe the Ravens got in at at 10 and 7, right? They weren't as good as this team in the NFC that was 11 and 6 because there's 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 objectifiable objective measures based on the record, based on who you played and what division and wild cards as to who gets in. We have the same thing in in conference tournament seating, right? Nobody ever complains about who gets a certain seed in the SEC basketball tournament, the SEC softball tournament, because it's obvious based on the standings, this is how it should be. We don't get that at the NCAA or at the national level because there's so many teams and we can't. That would be the ideal. That would be the the, the best. I, I have this crazy uh, idea that we should, uh, we should treat the CFP like the Champions League in soccer. So uh, Premier League is going to get their top four teams in the Champions League, right? James, I got that right? That's right. So all you have to do, if you finish in the top four of the Premier League, you know you're going to be in the Champions League, right? big deal, yeah. What if if the SEC were guaranteed, you know, this is going to drive people crazy, but four four playoff spots. That's only fair, I think. (laughs) So let's say say we could convince everybody. This is pie in the sky. But let's say we could convince everybody the SEC, based on historical strength, is going to get four teams in the playoff. And that is going to be based on – where they finish in SEC standings, then why would the SEC would play twelve conference games, and the top four teams would go to the playoffs? Think about how great that'd be for the fans. That's what the NFL does. They play all NFL games, and the top teams go to the top what seven each conference go to the playoff. We don't have that model in, in college sports because of the national scale, and um, I think it hurts our regular season because of it. Well, hundred percent, I agree. I mean, there's that, but there's also you know. Is this a feature or a bug? I mean, college football generates the kind of discussion and, <laughs> you know, opinion making. Same, same thing with the NCAA tournament of tracking who might get in and what, what are the bids going to be. There is something to that, but I do agree. Like, I don't want to hold back. I don't want to create false incentives where you're having to schedule games that are winnable to, in order to, like, make your way in. You know... So I, I keep going back to the NFL as the example. We're going down a rabbit hole here, but um, it's a podcast. Know, what it's for? People don't stop talking about the NFL because they don't have it's the a committee making a decision on who's going to the playoff. Instead, they say, "Okay, here's the playoff scenarios. If this team wins and this team loses and this happens and this team gets in, so we would. I think you would. I think it would transfer. I think the conversations about bubble teams and all this kind of stuff would switch to mathematically. Here's what would have to happen for this team to get hmm. in." 
Come on, Scott. I'm bringing it right now. He's bringing it out. I, I totally I it. agree. Shift the discussion away from people in a room that are not playing the sport. What's worse in a sport than you tell your athletes? You know who's going to decide this? These guys in a room who are not playing your sport. They can't play against you. You can't play against them. Instead, you say, here's the schedule. We win these games. We're in. We don't. We're out. It's up to you. Beautiful. I love it. Well okay. said. Okay. So we touched us in a little bit. I think when we were talking to you last year around this time, the expectation was uh, the eight or nine game model will probably be figured out before. And it keeps getting pushed back a little bit and a little bit. And of course we have the 2024 schedule set as kind of an interim model. Do you, I know you don't have a crystal ball and you're not in control of all the other member institutions, but do you have some kind of thought about when that decision is going to come down? I I do not, um, as far as timing of when the decision will be yeah. made. And I will. Um, I have always been a proponent of of nine mm-hmm. for the same reasons. The conversation we just had. Yeah. I think more competition against better teams is better for the sport. In this case, for our for the league for the SEC, and it's not just in football. I I believe that across the board. I okay. wish we played more conference games in basketball. I wish we played more conference games in softball and baseball and everything else, women's basketball. But um, we don't do that because we're gaming this postseason system, just being honest. Um, so with that in mind and and being, you know, just re- facing reality, I, I supported the eight-game interim model for 2024 um, because I do think what I referenced earlier about how is the CF committee going to handle the 12 team playoff I think there's something to that and um, if they show that they are going to reward the teams that have scheduled up then I think the SEC should go to nine games and but I think going through 24 maybe we go through 25 I don't know um, but but having at least one year to look and see how they've handled it there's probably some wisdom in that yeah so I think the narrative I think in a lot of places I've read is that the SEC maybe gets tilted towards Greg Sankey is waiting to see if ESPN is going to pony up more money for a ninth conference game. Uh, I'm sure that's a little bit of a factor, but can you speak to how much that's weighing on the decision? Well, it would be disingenuous for me to say that money has nothing to do with uh, anything that happens in college athletics, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's been proven over and over that money has a lot to do with it. So I'm sure um, that is playing a role in some people's minds. Um, you know, when we, those, there's a reason why, when I said that more conference games is better for our league, it's because it brings value to our league. And if it brings value to our league, it's going to bring value to our league television partners. And so, um, we probably should have an understanding of what that would mean if we went from eight to nine mm-hmm. before we make that decision. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I think all that makes sense, too. I like how you unpacked the reality of, and you were on the college football playoff committee, of, of there is no certainty with what they may do. And if you're stewarding University of Florida's football program, you have to be aware of the fact that your job is to, is to put your, your coaches and your players in the best chance to win. And you can't just blindly send it and say, well, nine objectively makes the most sense. And it is the optimal, as you mentioned already, result. But we're dealing with humans in a world that doesn't have a fixed rule set. So allowing yourself to see how it plays out in the real world, I think, as you mentioned, does make sense. There is wisdom there. And I don't think the fans are getting shortchanged in the interim because as we no. saw from the announcement of the 24 schedule, it's there's already a lot of compelling matchups. And, um, you know, what the nine game model would give us that the eight game won't is it would help ensure that those secondary rivalries continue annually. And um, it really doesn't affect us because we're not going to, it doesn't, we didn't figure, we didn't come out the right way in some of those conversations related to Tennessee or Auburn, some of those schools that we would consider secondary rivalries, even LSU, uh, if we go to the nine game model based on what has been discussed. But, um, you know, there's some. If we stay at eight for a year or two more, you know, then some of those games that everybody uh, considers—I say everybody—a lot of people consider uh, to be uh, kind of holy grail type games, like Alabama, Tennessee, or Auburn, Georgia. Those would go away. Um, the counter to that is they'd probably be replaced with other really good games, like Auburn, Florida, or like mm-hmm. Georgia, Alabama. Or Tennessee Auburn, um, which is again what's going to make our league really good now that Texas know you have you know they just add two more really good matchups for everybody to cycle through. Yeah, we had that conversation where I am obviously my love for Tennessee is not is no longer secret. Uh, I love that rivalry. I love everything about that game. And I was like, Scott, please don't don't do it to me. I can't <laughs> lose the Florida Tennessee game. I can't do it. I need it. And obviously, different generations of fans have that version of that game. And I saw recently a write-up on a national article that mentioned that Florida-Tennessee was the best game that came out of the scheduling changes in the 90s because it wasn't a game before. It wasn't. And uh, that was true. You had Phil Fulmer and, and you had you know Steve Spurrier, and that was an incredible Timing was everything, time. right? And, and now with Tennessee being back, which I just, I just think it's good for college football, just like I think it's good for Florida when Florida's really good. I think it's good for college football. That's a program where if it's right, it's good for everyone, and playing them is great. Uh, for a lot of reasons. But I will say this, and we talked about this and landed on this. No matter what happens, 
even if I get my worst poison pill result where I lose Tennessee as an annual opponent, the quality of games with which you are playing goes up. You are also going to play more SEC teams far more often, and you're still going to play Tennessee, the team I love, uh, every couple of years anyway. And so it's not perfect for me, but you know you can't always make perfect when you have these changes. But if you chose, if I had two choices, stay the way it is now, and I and I keep Tennessee, and I keep LSU, and I keep our schedule, and I also keep Vanderbilt and Kentucky and everyone else every year, I'm still going to take the one where I lose Tennessee every year and get more SEC teams. So it's important to remember that when everyone looks for the optimal path, but you always don't have an ability to get the optimal path when there's other people in the room, other teams, other schools that are looking for the optimal path. You just can't always land there. Yes. Yeah, it's it's kind of like going into a, an ice cream place that has a lot of great options, but you've landed on, you know, uh, cookies and cream and you just love the cookies and cream and you're bypassing all the other options because that's all they have. And the day you walk in there and they're out of cookies and cream and you have to try something else, you're going to find something else you really like because they have all these other great options, right? So, yeah, that's uh, the, you know, the, before the 92 expansion, as you've referenced, Tennessee and Florida did not have a history of playing very often, but Florida and Auburn did. Um, Tennessee and Auburn had a history of playing, but Auburn and LSU did not. And so what came of that is suddenly Tennessee and Florida started playing and had this great rivalry. And then LSU and Auburn, who had never played hardly, all of a sudden they play every year and they've created some great games through the years, right? So I wouldn't call it a, one of the you know great match. A great, we wouldn't consider it one of the great rivalries, but there's been some really compelling games in that series. For sure. And there's a lot of other examples if you go you know through the league of those kind of – because when you, when you take teams like Florida and Georgia and Tennessee – and LSU and Alabama and Auburn, and now you add Texas and Texas A&M and Oklahoma, and you start cross-pollinating, you're going to have some matchups that the public and college football fans uh, are going to find really compelling. Yeah, it's easy to see in a world where Florida becomes really good again and Texas becomes really good again, that that becomes an outrageous matchup. Florida-Texas was always a, an all-star game in many sports that people played against. It's always been a thing. The right. two states are, are linked together in so many ways. And yeah, it's not hard to see that you know down the road. Whenever they play, often they play becoming well, a major Well, you got what, two of the three biggest states in the country represented by the flagship universities of those two states. So there's, I would think not just in football that we will see uh, you know, softball, uh, volleyball, Men's basketball, baseball—you'll see a lot of great matchups, you know, across the SEC, uh, SEC competition with with us and the Longhorns. Yeah, it's going to be great. Let's talk briefly about NAL. We spent a lot of time on this last time. Some of the dust has settled, of course. A lot of the answers are still—it's complicated, it's tricky. But we spoke with you at length, and you talked a lot about the importance of legislation for this at some point in time to go somewhere, right? It always ends with, well, in reality, there has to be some legislation somewhere. We're we're stuck with something. We can't just do these things. Well, obviously, Congress has been busy. There's four proposed bills. Uh, any thoughts on perhaps where this is going? Are we getting closer to a world of, of, of uniformity, if you will, enforceable rules, uh, something that looks like a, you know, a structure? Or is that maybe still further away than maybe it feels? Um, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm in a period of evolving ideas and thoughts, opinion on, on NIL. And so um, I think when, when two years ago, when this first hit, uh, it was such a paradigm shift that everyone's looking for. We got, we got sent out adrift at sea 
and everybody's looking for land, like something to cling on to, right? If that's a good metaphor. Um, you know, we've been we've been out at sea now for two years, and and in some ways, I I think we're all getting our sea legs. There's still a huge desire for for you know a lighthouse to to guide us home uh, across college athletics. But I also, you know, it's been a kind of fascinating uh, market study, if you will, to see that um, college athletics still exists two years later. Um, young people are still getting educated. Fans are still going to games and watching. In fact, if anything, it's they're watching at more levels and they're attending at a higher level than they were two years ago when this when NIL became allowed. Um, and I, I, you know, you, you, you've said before that you don't think it's sustainable and I've heard others say that, but really, um, the market really dictates sustainability, not, not the rule structure. The rule structure might can make sustainability easier or more comfortable. Um, cause unfettered, uh, the market will determine what's sustainable and what isn't, but it's really uncomfortable. Un- with no legislation around it. So uh, I I am now the opinion that if we get some kind of federal legislation, I hope it's a good one. I hope it makes sense. There's a fear that we're going to get something that we, that we find more odorous than what we're currently dealing with. Interesting. But uh, I, I, you know, from a Gator standpoint, I think we've got to figure out on how to uh, be really good sailors while we're adrift, while we're out at sea, and and be as good as we can in this space, and if we ever get back to land, we'll adapt again. But in the meantime, let's uh, let's make sure we have a great, robust plan, and 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 uh, we're able to um, be in the space we need to be at. You know, I I, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me deposed, but uh, there's been a lot of good that's come from this. What we have is a really inefficient system. That's really where it comes down. We have we have a system where we are NIL is compensating young people uh, in ways that schools cannot, and it's we've added layers to the conversation that just make it inefficient. And so, uh, Florida Victorious, which you know, I'm trying to think when they got announced. They were in existence last time I was on with you, but they were not announced till the spring. But those guys have done a great job of building a team and putting together a professional operation to help Gator athletes in this time. And they've been a real asset uh, to the whole uh, Gator ecosystem. And so, I, you know, I, I want to put my full support behind them for anybody who's interested in, in that space because they've been great. And uh, I'm glad we have them. And so we're going to we're going to continue while we're in the situation we're in to to make them as strong as they can be within our power. And we hope, you know, Gator uh, continue to respond to their messaging. And it's been really good. I, I appreciate the way they've gone about it. Um, I, I, I'm kind of, uh, I've, we've all, everybody in athletics spent a long time the last couple of years kind of envisioning what should come next. And, and I think we're best served right now, but let's try to figure out how to be really good with where we are. That's really interesting. I, someone said the system isn't working, but, you know, that's the prevailing opinion, but it's so short. Like the, the timeline is so short. We don't know if it's working or not yet. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. 
it feels chaotic, but it doesn't mean it won't settle into something that is workable for everyone. And the, there are advantages to what's happening, but there's a lot of disadvantages too. And is the alternative worse, right? Congressional legislation might be a boon for some, but also might be terrible for others. And yes, be careful what you wish for is probably to be in view there as well. To me, there's really three options. And, and this is just, you know, because a lot of people, their head, their eyes, I think, roll back in their head when they hear NIL. But really, there's three options to what's currently going on. Uh, and none of those three options is going back to like things were before. Right. So that's not going to happen. The three options are we continue down the path we're going right now where uh, it's uh, there's there's no real rules around it. Um, and we just keep going down this path. Uh, another option is uh, the, on the other side of the, of the equation is. We make athletes employees, they unionize, and they collectively bargain some kind of benefits package. Um, and then the third option is kind of in between, which is federal legislation that kind of carves out some kind of special exemption for college athletics to operate in a certain way. Um, I, you know, nobody seems to like any of those three options. So, but those, to me, are the only three options we have. So we're going to have to pick one of them. And it may just, if we don't pick any of them, we're going to stay where we are, which is we're picking the first option. But, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's so much there, like you mentioned, and we covered a lot of it last time. And I think like, you know, where I keep landing with the, the, the not sustainable part is not that the, the market, which to restate my opinions on this, of course, I'm about as free market as you can get in life with the combination of the role of government is to protect private property. And if the government protects private property, so if you come and you steal my stuff, they enforce the law against you, it's clear, it's decisive, then free societies create the best stuff. I feel like we're in a place where it's sustainable and that the mafia is sustainable. They'll operate in the shadows. They'll take advantage of legislative areas that are not good. And I almost never want more legislation. That's kind of the funny thing about the question I asked you. I thought you took it to a good place. But I do feel like, you know, we've talked about this. The different stakeholders here... It's not exactly how a free market would build it from scratch if this were existing and we're Frankensteining this together. It's like the swamp. We have these things we have to deal with, but we can't deal with them. Unlike the swamp, you can. You hire an architect, you can rebuild it. So everyone's navigating these channels they have to navigate and the market will figure out how to make this work. Uh, but obviously, I think there's that better path where, again, if you can have protection of private property, which would mean contracts exist, they're upheld, athletes can't hold colleges hostage and colleges can't hold athletes hostage and you have a variety of ways to do this that the marketplace would already take care of you'd be in a better place than we are now but to your point we're not there we're not in the past and we're not in the future we're in the present right now and as you mentioned thankfully we're gators and gators are really good at swimming so hopefully we can swim around for a while and navigate the channels uh but yes obviously it has gained the attention of just about everyone again with four bills and congress up for play and generally speaking, when the government steps in and heavily regulates things or tries to make rules, people just find better ways to get around them. So uh, I think the problems and some of the ideas you've had before, I think, are bigger solutions if you want to go down that path. And we're talking about systematic and systemic change, which is so difficult with all this, all the college stakeholders that exist across the country in different states with different rules. So You know, there, there are some things that, in my opinion, the NCAA could – do that would um, make things seem more tolerable uh, related to transfers, you know. So part of the reason 
that NIL is so chaotic is uh, the transfer rules changed almost at the same exact exactly. same time. So could we, you know, we have, in my opinion, there are really broad transfer window opportunities currently. Could those periods be tightened up and could a little more structure be placed around those? Um, not to take away freedom of movement, but to um, maybe make it a little more uh, focused, if you will. I think that that has potential to help some. Oh, yeah. I think you're, that's that's been a significant piece. And obviously coaches seem to bring this up the most. And if a lot of your coaches are saying, hey, this is, this is a sore spot for us, for all of us, perhaps something could be done to make that better. Okay. Switching gears again. Every time I think that the realignment dust has settled, hmm. some more news. I, I, we're recording this on Monday afternoon, so I don't know. Maybe some more realignment news broke while, <laughs> since we've been recording. But Colorado has announced their intention to leave the Pac-12 for the Big 12. Also, conferences, maybe you should just not name yourselves by the number of teams you have. Just my suggestion. Um, do you expect realignment? to continue at this pace? Like if you look like 10 years from now, is it, is it going to be this churn of people switching or is it, will it settle at some point? You know, Alan, I honestly, I, I could only venture a guess and it, it, it's not based on any kind of inside Intel. So it probably not a very good guess, but it seems to me that the sec and the big 10 are in a position where they're, probably not going to be a lot of movement there anytime soon. And so there's a downstream cycle that we're seeing right now mm. um, relative to, you know, what what's happening. Um, and the, to me, the, the next, and I, I'm, all, I'm not, I have no inside information. These are published reports, but there's been a lot of published reports related to the ACC and their schools being locked in for a substantial period of time. Um, and at some point, either that time is going to elapse, 12 years from now, whatever, or uh, it's going to get close enough to where um, if they are interested in leaving, and I'm not saying they are, but that's just what has sure. been reported. If someone is interested in leaving, they're going to get close enough down the line with the you know, with the the end of their current deal, that they're going to go ahead and and try to make themselves available. That there are some schools in that league that would probably trigger some more movement somewhere. I don't know at what level. I don't know to what conference. Um, but that uh, it seems to me like there's going to be the what's happening with the Big Twelve and the Pac Twelve is probably uh, um, uh, the last reaction to Texas OU and USC UCLA's decisions mm -hmm. and that'll play itself out whether others join Colorado or not that that's going to play itself out and then I think we all look to see what's going on in the ACC 5 10 12 years from now and anytime in between when you know they may and and they may get to a point where they go hey we're all good together and they don't and nobody wants to to move somewhere else I what's interesting is I don't sense anybody in the Big 10 wants to leave the Big 10 I don't sense anyone in the SEC wants to leave the SEC. And then you start looking at, are there schools that either of those two leagues would be interested in having joined as members? 
and um, I, I, I would think you would only want to take someone that's going to add value. Mm-hmm. And there just are not, in my opinion, there's there's not a lot of currently there's not a lot of options out there that do that. Yeah, it's really wild to see what's going on with the Pac-12 and obviously the Big 12, which was seemingly left for dead and now is maybe going to pull in a lot of the Pac-12. Like if you're Oregon, you know, what do you? What are I don't you, know. This what is, are you thinking right now? I mean, yeah. If you're the AD at Oregon, like it's seemingly the, the sky is falling around you. Your conference is crumbling at a crucial time when you have the playoffs coming and everything else, and you're looking at a league where you might have who in your league. And you're a nationally recognized program. What do well, you do? I, I think there's the problem. It's like you don't want to be the last one out. So there's the fear of like I'm the last man standing in this conference. But if they leave, things crumble. But if they stay, there might be a lot of stability. I don't think losing Colorado necessarily kills them. But if there's more dominoes to fall, then you're looking around at everybody. It's the prisoner's dilemma about who's going to like jump ship first. Keep in mind, though, that... The new CFP model, which mm-hmm. um, you know allows for the top six highest ranked conference champions to get automatic bid. That's a good point. So, if the Pac-12 stays together with nine schools, you know, do is is you know that that's probably a pretty compelling reason to stay. Thinking, let's win the league and hope we're one of the top six highest ranked conference champions, and we're in the CFP. I don't, you know, if they lose. If there's other schools that decide to leave, what does, you know, what is that? At what point does it diminish to the point where it's going to be hard to be one of the, the six highest ranked? I don't know. But um, that's interesting. But I will also put a caveat there, which is the 12-team model that has the six highest ranked conference champions is really for 25 or 24 and 25 seasons. After that, it can be reading there's no model. Yeah. We assume there'll be a 12 team model after that, but that's not been constituted. Mm. Who's involved in that? All that's TBD. If you assume that it continues with what's going to happen in 24 and in 25, at least gives you a path to think, even if we're in a smaller uh, league that's been diminished some, excuse me, we still have a path to get a playoff. Fascinating. Yeah, perhaps with a lot less TV revenue, which seems to be a big reason why people want to move. In and about the cabin, but uh, <laughs> but hey, Florida State, I think potentially was accused of staying at the ACC for a long time in the BCS era because they had an easy path right. to uh, the championship, so they wouldn't be the first to do it. All right, let's talk about evaluating coaches. Perhaps my favorite subject, and you kind of already touched on this just a little bit earlier, uh, but obviously you're here now in the midst of two huge hires, Golden and Napier, both of them have, I think, safe to say, significant uptick momentum in talent acquisition and recruiting right now, right? Both for different reasons. Golden having to seemingly rebuild an entire basketball team in the offseason, which he did very well. Number one rated transfer class. Napier now trending in in our tier, our top tier. He's like tier one and a half, chance to be tier one in recruiting, which we have as one of our three-legged stools of the three-year test. A lot of reasons to be positive in the talent part, which is the most important part. I think we agree here at the pod for. So when you're when you're looking, you know, in this scenario, year two, and you're examining and evaluating, obviously you have a contract there. But is it is it sort of like a, a feel thing? I want to see what the style looks like during the year. Is it a is it a quantitative thing? You have to hit this many wins. I mean, how do you just sort of 
give the green light, yellow light, red light as you're checking yeah, in measuring on progress towards these the coaches yeah. towards the goal. Um, most most of what you're looking at really has nothing to do with what happens uh, on the court or on the field or track or whatever. Um, it's how are they leading? You know, how are they assembling people around them, whether it's staff or whether it's recruits? Um, how are they, how are, you know, uh, how, how are they leading people? You know, I always, I say the three things coaches have to do is they have to, uh, they have to put the right people around them. They have to have the ability to lead those people and then they have to put them in a position to be successful. So how are they doing? And there's a lot that goes into each of those three buckets, right? But, you know, are they, are they putting structure in place? Is there accountability? Is a, is a healthy culture being developed? Um, how does he treat he or her? How are they treating the people they're leading or the people they're working with? Um, how are they representing? Um, do, is what they're doing look like it can be a successful and be sustainable? And um, so, that, you know, that's that I don't there's not like a I don't have like an AI checklist for what that is, but it's, you know, you 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 know, you pay attention to, you know, just what's going on in the program. And um, you pay attention to how the, uh, the the players on the team are responding. You know, you can tell when someone's responding positively to leadership and, and when there's a disconnect. Um, you can tell when uh, there, you know, you can walk, you can walk into a, a uh, you can be around a team and you can tell when, um, there's there's accountability and structure in place versus when that's lacking, so you just you you try to pay attention to all that stuff and then, you know, eventually you go out and you you know you're gonna have all that's gonna manifest itself with wins and losses at some point, um, but you can you can win some games without having all that other stuff, but the sustainability piece sometimes is a challenge, um, and so you know. I see a lot of real positive. Obviously, I'm. A, I mean, I'm, I'm. I'm still real excited about both of those two guys and and the rest of our coaches. I, but I, 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 I've said this. I think when I was with you guys last year, that uh, Todd and Billy both have a lot of the traits that coaches that have had a lot of success at Florida have, both from how they go about what they do, the kind of people they are, how they treat others, um, and I, I just, I feel like there's a. There, there's a lot of upside there on both of them, and and the more times they, more cycles they have a chance to go through, I think both of them are are kind of improvement freaks that they're going to uh, assess, evaluate, adjust, and repeat. Assess, evaluate, adjust, repeat, um, and you know the whole flywheel thing. And I think I just think the more times they get a chance to do that, the better their systems are going to be, and the better our programs are going to be. Yeah, that's a good description of a process-based mindset rather than a, a goals-based mindset. I'm going to sell this many things or I'm going to do this many repetitions. Instead, it's say, if I do this process every single day, it will lead to the right results. Uh, obviously, sometimes the people that look really promising can do seemingly good processes and not win. And I, I heard you mention there at the end, of course, eventually you get far enough in where you say, okay, the process has been around long enough. There has to be enough fruit with what happens. So behind closed doors, and there's not a, a, a specific answer, it's a general answer. 
Are there ideas set between athletic directors and coaches of the time that you reasonably may think a build may take? So perhaps you look at this particular situation and say, look, this is a complicated rebuild. There's a lot of factors here, new variables. Normally, this might be a three to four year project, but five is probably realistic. I'm going to give you the process, do your thing. I'm going to watch you make sure these character things are in place and I see the building blocks. And, you know, if it gets to be that time, and things aren't turning enough, then we'll have a different discussion. Is there kind of an, an expectation where a coach may rebuttal and say, yeah, I think looking at this, this may take this much time? Or is stuff just sort of, I got the job, I'm going to run with it, and then we'll just see when I get there? Yeah, you know, I I, I have not, I don't really have the, uh, hey, by your ex, this needs to be, you know, this needs to be the success or the results. I don't have those conversations. Um, I, I don't know that they're productive. Um you come to a place like University of Florida, the expectation is not subtle, right? No one, no one is guessing. No one's trying to guess what uh, is expected, right? You walk, you know, you walk around all of our buildings for all of our teams. There's numbers outside of the building, and those numbers are the years we've won conference or national championships, right? So it's it's you walk in the door, you know what <laughs> what gets celebrated and what gets highlighted, so. Uh, we want to compete for championships. And, you know, if if we ever get to a situation where we feel like, you know what, that's we're not going to be able to do that in this current path, that's when you start to have try to have some of those other conversations. But, um, you know, I just, there, there's, there's uh, we all want everything now. And I want everything now, right? I'm super impatient. I hate losing. But, it doesn't, you know, I, I think if you have the right people and you have a little bit of patience, the reward is pretty great. And and I'm going to use a couple, I'm going to use a, a distant example and I'm going to use a more recent example. I think Billy Donovan was in his 10th year when he won his first national championship. 10 years. Yeah. Now he won a couple of SECs. He made a Final Four before that, but it was his only his second Final Four, I believe, in 06 and his first national title. And that was his 10th year. Um, uh, Brian Shelton, who just stepped down as our men's tennis coach to go coach, coach his son, Gator Great Ben, uh, was in his ninth year when he won his national title for the Gators. And I think he was in his seventh year when he won the SEC for his first time with Florida. Um, J.C. Deacon, we just talked about men's golf earlier. This is year eight, first time to win the SEC, first time to, to win the national title. Um, and really, I think this is his first year that we even got into the match play, which is top eight at the Nationals since JC's been here. Uh, but in both of those situations, you saw how they're the kind of people they were, right? They fit. They were, they were, um, they treated everybody the right way. They recruited talented kids. Um, they just, it took a while to kind of build things in place. And, and, you know, JC had a group of those really talented, uh, a few years ago. And they underachieved a little bit, he would probably agree with. Um, and a lot of it had to do with team building and culture. And he brought back another incredibly, went out and recruited another incredibly talented group of guys. And those are the, that's the group that, that just hosted, mm. hoisted the trophy. So he learned, he got better as a coach, right? That's another thing we, we forget that um, coaches aren't necessarily on a, on a, a static path they're you know they they are they're dynamic creatures as well and um you know they, they will tell you the good ones that 
you know, when they, when they were in the building process, they got better during that time. And so if you've got the right person, you believe, and you, you see a lot of things in place, um, they're, they're going to, they're going to make some mistakes along the way. And sometimes you've got to let them make the mistakes because they're going to be so much better on the other side of the mistakes. And then you've got something that you couldn't go out in the open market and find. You've got a really coach who fits your place, who knows your program, who's built a, a culture, who's, who's made the mistakes and, and gotten better. And that to me, that's, that's worth, that's worth going through that process with. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of good thoughts there. No, oh, that's, that's a great vision for program and culture and team building. I think, I, yes, everything tends to be zero sum in sports. Like, uh, you know, one team is going to win the championship and everyone is not. And, you know, the Giannis um, from the Bucks was talking about this, you know, and he got some both acclaim and criticism talking about, you know, the essentially boils down, not everything can be a failure. Like, it's not a failure if you're learning and growing from it. And only, you know, only one team is going to win the championship. And, Yes, at a place like Florida, the expectations are clear as success. And this is, I mean, athletics are win or lose. It is binary. But yes, are you seeing things along the way that are going to, are pointing you towards something that is significant and could be long? I love what you said about successful and sustainable. And there are programs, I think, that have had success but not been sustained. That's, that's equally as hard to do. Yeah, I think that the, the tying thread there is I'm on the board for the Cade, and the Cade talks a lot about inventivity. And when I get to do my other podcast, I get to interview a ton of innovators who do all kinds of cool stuff. And the key to all these storylines is as an evaluator, right, you can see if someone is innovating, learning from their mistakes, or if the same things are happening again and again and again. And that is when I think you know you've hit a wall. So to use baseball as an example again, because baseball has been talked about a lot today, the minor league system in baseball is, a, is is difficult and challenging and at times brutal. It's really, really good crucible for evaluating talent because you have to rise from single A, double A, triple A. And sometimes you go to the bigs and you're not quite ready. You get sent back down. But the guys who keep on growing and learning, I can't hit this pitch. They targeted me here. They exploited my weakness. Eventually, if they're talented enough, get it. And even the best scouting departments sometimes miss on a guy because you just don't know if a guy is going to eventually get to a point where he just maybe can't innovate further anymore in that field. And that's the beauty of human development in general. And coaches are doing the same thing along the way. And, you know, we said this a lot in the podcast. I love a three-year test. And generally it's like, well, hey, you still have to wait three years. You can't, you can't wait one year. You can't wait one and a half years. There's a lot of things that are happening. And you have to just hopefully – not see the same main issues if you've seen them keep recurring because then you start to say, well, wait a minute, this is interesting. Or significant decay, like things are getting worse, not or better. Or things yeah. fall apart, correct. And so, yeah, I think you mentioned a lot of all those things that are great. I, I love process-based, um, I think, growth in life. I think that's the way to go almost entirely. I think you get better results and you don't know when, to your point. You can't control it in sports for sure where one bounce of a ball can change your entire outcome. You don't know when. But eventually you see consistency, as you mentioned, across teamwork, across your organization, across how your team plays. And that, I think, obviously, as you mentioned, is the goal that you're doing as a leader in everything you're doing internally in the UAA, as well as with your teams. And, you know, that that's a good mindset. It's a great mindset. All right. A couple quick questions to close here. Uh, this is, from, I don't know, his real name, Dangineer. Engineer, yeah, he's a frequent contributor on the GNFP yes. Sammy. Well, I don't know, I never says that little seems like danger on. with an engineer combined, yeah, but he can or maybe his name is Dan. Um, the orange and blue game, 
why aren't we wearing jer- jerseys that are, you know, orange versus blue? We had white, blue versus white this year. We did get a lot of that, so we felt like it was a lighthearted question. Yeah. We had to ask yeah. what, what happened. Yeah, I, would, I would put that in the, uh, that is, that they don't let me deal with things that important. And so um, that's, that's way above my pay grade right yeah. there. But it does seem like, um, yeah, orange and, orange and blue is, is the name of the game. It's in you the title. You have that, right? Oh, man. We'll look, we'll I, launch. I, I can appreciate the symmetry of the question. Yes. <laughs> launch, launch an investigation. The aesthetic nature of the question. Okay. All right. Last, Maybe we should, so let me ask a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we rebranded the name of the game, would he, would the quest, would the, the person asking the question feel better about one team wearing blue, one team wearing white? No, okay. knowing from what I know from this guy. If we called it the Gator Spring game. Yeah. I think that he would feel better. I think the blue versus white thing is is like people in Kentucky and other schools, you know. But I do I do think so. I think that was kind of the funny thing is a lot of obviously, especially our listeners are very educated. Yeah. And so if something doesn't fit the logical cone, it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> are we doing? So yeah. I think you're right. If it was a Gator Spring game, you can pick whatever colors you want. It doesn't yeah. matter. But yeah, the orange and blue game, you tune in and you're like, well, we have it's, the know, blue team versus the hard, white team. It's not hard to fulfill that. Yeah. Either that. Yeah. You know, but that is funny. That's funny, that you, that's funny you asked that. All yes. right. Uh, last question here. And this is just for you personally. What are you most looking forward to in this next year? Oh, I, oh man, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't. When we went through uh, the COVID lockdown year, and you know, we just talked about how much or we start off talking about how much fun the spring was this year for the right. Gators, right? We, um, so we had that that spring where just everything stopped, and I I found myself like really frustrated because there was nothing. To there was no Gator sports to go, you know, beat somebody up on, right? Uh, get a victory in. So I, I always just look forward to the, you know, the 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 seasons. You know, the to look. I can't wait to watch, uh, you know, soccer and volleyball get going here coming up, and then football. And you know, I love the rhythm of a football season, right? The Saturday to Saturday and every day of the week kind of has a certain feel. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a football fan, you kind of grow up with that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm excited to, to see what the basketball programs, they both have brought in a lot of young talent, see what that looks like. Um, I could go through all of our sports, but, and, and I just realized I'm going to get myself in trouble if I keep going down this path. Yeah, but, there you go. Um, but each sport has its place in the they calendar. They do, absolutely. You know, and you think about like Friday nights in January and February with gymnastics and all the people packing the O-Dome to mm-hmm. watch those ladies. And, um, and you just, you know, all the spring sports have their own, you know, fun rhythm to them. You know, keeping up with, on my phone with a random golf tournament or a tennis match because the Gators have a chance, you know, the Gators are competing. Um, I, I really appreciate and, and love that part of my job, but it's um, if I'm being honest and, and I think the other, all our other coaches would appreciate this because they, they love it too. There's, there, there's nothing quite like being in the swamp when mm-hmm. it's full and it's rocking. And so, that's you know that's that's the highlight just like it is for the fans that's the highlight for us we have those six or seven Saturdays and everyone piles in and and creates that energy um that's that's pretty cool so uh, we start off at Utah and we'll come back and play um um McNeese and then you know that that third game of the year is is our first SEC home game against Tennessee and it's going to be at night and 
uh, I think that'll be an electric one of one of several electric atmospheres we will have this year. For sure, I've I was spent my summer with a lot of people from the Pacific Northwest, and you know, Oregon State people, and you know, even some Utah people, and I was trying to explain them. Those are those places I'm sure are fun, but until you come and experience a place like LSU or Alabama or Florida, you just can't really I can't really describe it to you like what that is like in electricity in the air on a big game. So for sure, I, that Tennessee weekend has already been circled in my mind as uh, a big moment in the fall where, and you know, it's the third game again. It's the chance to kick off really, you know, college football, obviously we're playing Utah. That's a, a, a bigger than normal or tougher than normal game for the Gators. But yeah, I think that's a great answer. I, I have one thing if I can, yeah, uh, sure. I'm going to relate something so back to being a Reds fan, the GM of the Reds was, uh, I love this story. I, I heard that he did a podcast and he was talking about, you know, since they've been winning this year, they've, their crowds have picked up and he was talking about how, you know, how great the fans have been and uh, some of the atmospheres they've created. And uh, his quote in the podcast was that, um, you know, some of the home games we've had this year have felt like SEC football games. And so here's, you know, you know what state Cincinnati's in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and what geographic <laughs> footprint, what yeah. conference would be affiliated with that geographic footprint? And not only that, right next door to where the Reds play is where the Bengals play. So yeah. he didn't say it felt like a football game, an NFL game, a Bengals game. He didn't say it felt like an Ohio State. He said it felt like these these feel like SEC football games. I just thought that is something that, that, you know, our league has developed and the Swamp has certainly been traditionally at the forefront of, of – people's understanding of what an sec football stadium is like um and so that's we have we gator fans look forward to you guys helping to continue that that reputation and let's create some noise this fall no i love that that's that's too good and i for one would love to see obviously the swamp and the odom you know back at their full level of ferocity i think a lot of people are sleeping on florida right now in some of those regards we will return and when we do i hope we bring the Thunder. As always, Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we know you're a super busy guy, especially this time of year. So it's never lost on us. You come spend time with us in the studio today. Um, you know, very thankful for that. And as I said, every time you've been on, every time we talk with you, the more time we spend with you, it's just it's just great as a two-time Gator alum to have you helming the ship. All your answers, you know, full of just uh, candor. Also, always, always looking for, you know, I think the right things and how you're running the program. And I think that is... People can just be sold on winning and not looking for the right things. But I think your commitment to what you do and, and how you do it is is uh, you know beyond respectable. It's also encouraging, and I think it I think it's totally. great. I know for Alan and I, we really really appreciate that. And you know, sometimes we know leaders don't get to hear it enough about hey, we really appreciate all the work you're putting in, and we know that you can't make everyone happy. And at times, you'll get a late night text from me saying, "Please don't lose Tennessee." <laughs> but, uh, but you know, super, super thankful for you being yeah. at the helm and, and spending time with us and our listeners here. It means a lot. Well, I appreciate it. And, and um, just so your listeners know, I, I uh, uh, one of my fall routines is I, uh, you know, I go on on morning or lunchtime runs depending on my calendar. And uh, that's when I get my podcasts listened to that I listen to. And you guys are in the rotation, so I appreciate the the job you guys do. Um, I don't think you can hear me when I'm talking to you while I'm on my run, disagreeing with something you might have said. It doesn't happen very often, but um, great. I do appreciate uh, you guys have done a great job building a following. And and you're um, while I may not always agree with everything you say, 
uh, you're, you know, you're measured, you're respectful, you're reasoned, and and uh, you're obviously very passionate about college football and in particular in the Gators specifically. So uh, appreciate the opportunity and uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Yes. Thanks so much, Scott Strickland. And we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks as we get you ready for the football season. It's here. Can't believe it. Yep. See you then.